Hi, I'm El Kamahira, and you're listening to Subject to Power. Most women who end up fighting for women's rights have an origin story, some event in their lives that opened their eyes not only to their own vulnerability as women, but made clear that they belong to an entire repressed class from which there's no escape. My guest today, Brazilian journalist Andrea Nobre, had several such awakenings throughout her life, starting at eight years old. In this episode, she takes me through her journey from silenced victim to outspoken survivor to wide-awake activist who uses her research and journalism to remind us all how much work there's still to do. I know that you're Brazilian, but you're in Belgium. I love to know like your personal story about how you ended up in Belgium. So basically, I went, I left Brazil because I fell in love with the son of the owner of the bakery, who was <laughs> Portuguese. <laughs> so basically, yeah, so uh, we met and we fell in love. And then he said, like, I, I would love to go and live in Portugal for a while. I would like to come with me. But at the time when he did that, I was still finishing journalism school. So I wanted to finish that first. Because coming from a humble background, I have many, many, many childhood friends who became teenage mothers. The reason so many friends of mine became teenage mothers is because we were girls living in poverty. Very poor sexual education. All the this push for, for young girls from all social classes to hyper-sexualize themselves, to start having sexual activity very early on, and also the poverty, you know, because there was no money for contraception pills. Right. There was no money. So, like, for me, for instance, I didn't become a teenage mother because I refused to have sex until I finished high school, totally refused. Like I had this, this one boyfriend when I was 16 and a month after we started dating, he was like pushing for us to have sex. And I said, no, I want to finish high school. And he dumped me. <laughs> I was foreseeing a lot of trouble if I didn't finish my undergraduate course. So I like, no. So because of that, he left, my husband, uh, he left in 2002. And we spent two years with me in Brazil and he in Portugal. While you were finishing school. Yeah. Yeah. And so in 2004, I left. And so did you start working as a journalist in Brazil? or No, because I graduated in December 2003. In May 2004, I was already moving to Portugal. So I didn't have time to start and then also, during my time doing uh, journalism school, I was working as a primary school teacher okay. and studying. I was working all day long and studying at night. Everything I needed to do to graduate as a journalist, I, I did during my time from 7 to 11 at night. Mm. I didn't have any time whatsoever during the day because I had to be at school at 7 in the morning. And, and working until 5.30. Work 
So while you were uh, studying journalism and working the schedule, it sounded like you had developed a consciousness about being a woman. So like, how did that happen? Well, you have, I have to start by saying, by talking about the fact that I was sexually abused when I was eight years old. But I think if you can believe that, at the age of eight, I had already started developing this, this. I wouldn't know the word feminist when I was eight years old. But for instance, so the abuse happened. And then this man told me that I that only, he, did, he only did that because I was special. You know, he was a like 50, 60 year old man. And I tried to digest that for a few days, but then I was talking to some neighbors casually. We were like eight, nine and 10. And they were saying like how uncomfortable it was. All these boys at school, the boys in the neighborhood who were doing upskirting and touching them inappropriately and this kind of stuff. And I was just like listening to them. And then I dived in and I said, well, it's not only the boys. And then I told them what this man did to me. To my horror, these girls said, oh, yeah, he does that. So I was kind of too late. From that moment on, I started trying to find if he has done that to more children apart from these girls. And so far I have collected, it was about at least that I know of 20 kids. And that included my big sister, my big brother, a girl who was the niece of his wife, his own daughter, a girl who my parents were raising, you know, she, she was like fleeing domestic violence. Uh, she was my foster sister and she was abused as well. From that moment on, I start taking some kind of like actions. I put something, some things in action. For instance, so one of the things I, I went around and like talking to girls and boys in my neighborhood and tell them, do not be alone with this man. This is actually something I did like when I was eight, from the age of eight. Another thing that I did was I cut contact with this man completely for the rest of his life. And like if he would come to my house, I would simply hide, you know, or lock myself in my bedroom and I would like, I just refused. And the, the third thing I did, which I find it quite funny now, is that from the age of nine, I decided that I was going to read women. Like one of the first things I read was Pollyanna. I don't know if you heard of this book. Mm -hmm. I love it. Eleanor, Ele Eleanor H. Porter. But it was written by a woman. Even if like it's dead boring, just because it was written by a woman, I would try and read, listening to women, reading women. So like, I think this was the start of my feminist conscience. And then of course, after the abuse, I saw so many things happening. I, I started writing poetry at the age of 10 because I read so much. I learned how to read and write at, at seven and I was already reading a lot at the age of eight, but 
after that, you know, I, I tried to make myself so small, you know, after the abuse. And then uh, I went to, into my world and like I was reading and trying to understand everything. I, I was getting my writing into competitions, getting a lot of good feedback. And none of this was stimulated. People would turn to me and say, oh, you are very skinny and tall and you have very skinny fingers. You should play the piano. And I'm like, I think that was a bit cruel, to be honest, because like I was in poverty, you know, like when I was a child, we nearly starved. How, how, I don't know if you understand that, like you live in the United States and it's probably more accessible for people in the United States than it is in Brazil for children and teenagers to play tennis, to play basketball. The reality of Brazil is that, first of all, we have most of the people living in poverty. Okay. So it's like 70% of Brazilians are living in poverty. Then of the 70%, you might get like 20, 30% living below the line of poverty. Okay. Do you really think that like the 70% of Brazilians will have any access to a tennis court, to canoeing, to a piano? No. There is barely money to eat. That's the reality. You know, sexism that I was noticing when I was a yeah. teenager. Like, oh, you should yeah. become a pianist. Or like, oh, you are tall and skinny. You should become a catwalk model. You know, and nobody's like, what about my writing? So, yeah. I, and I went to journalism school and most of the, the teachers were men. And they would say to me that I will never become a journalist because I was a woman. So, yeah, so I, I had been seeing. But another thing that might be interesting to point out is that Brazil is a very sexist country because like, you have like, it's a very religious country, very male dominated. Men think that women belong to them in every possible way. So like groping in public transports is like rampant, you know, it happens all the time. So like there's so much, as we say in, in communication, in journalism, there's so much noise that women can barely start to, to think about all these things. All these things are normalized especially because the narrative all the time I grew up generally with this narrative in which these men uh, and all the women were, were repeating that women didn't need feminism anymore because we can wear trousers, because we can vote, we can marry whoever we, are, we want, we can not marry and if we marry we can divorce. We can work, we can study, so there is no need for feminism anymore. And feminism, anyway, has become a man-hating movement. So that, that's generally what I was told growing up. Mm. I also was told that in order to be like a feminist, you need to be hyper-sexualized. But I didn't have that conscience, that, that, that conscience came a little bit after. Mm. So you got all these messages about what feminism was and wasn't, saw your reality of living in 
Brazil. And how, so how did that evolve? Evolved in the, 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 in the following way. So I was receiving all these messages from, from, from men in Brazil. And then I went to live in Portugal. And then all that like more overt harassment was less so, much less so. That gave me respite to basically breed. So when I started breeding, I started seeing like, you know, okay, so there is another life. I don't need to be groped all the time. And then like it empowers you to say no. So much so that I was working in this cooking magazine as a journalist. And one day the editor, the male editor, he sat next to me, we were in front of the computer, looking at pieces, the editing. And then he put one of his hands on my tie. It was a little squish, a little caressing. And I like <laughs> took his hand out, like, I don't give you consent to touch my tie. And he said exactly that. It's just a hand on a tie. I, I don't give you consent at all. I grabbed my stuff. I was one month and a half in this magazine. Grabbed my stuff, never come back. I might not have done that if I hadn't left, left Brazil. It yeah. might have come later, not yeah. at the age of 26. One of my first feminist news stories, and I, like an opinion piece that I wrote, and this was for the Huffington Post Brazil at the time, was called Why Women Go to Toilet Together. But I only started talking about anything feminism-like, because you have to understand, the abuse really shocked me was not the abuse only, okay? What shocked me was this. I, I was abused, and then I told my, my parents, my mom and my stepfather, but you have to remember that man who abused the children was the husband of my stepfather's cousin. So when I told him that, he said, well, okay, I believe that it happens, but for this to have happened, you must have provoked him somehow and and this silenced me for a very very long time so i believe that the feminist conscience was there from that moment you know since it happened i just was not outspoken at all at all because the backlash was so immense i was completely silenced i was just not paralyzed i was doing stuff but yeah. I wouldn't speak about it. Yeah. And so then Portugal happened. And so then when I moved to the UK, that's when I started at least getting less uh, sexual harassment mm. and less violence. And then like it was a second stage in which I could breed. You know, mm. I was not like, you know, not, not so much groping, not like overt xenophobia, sexism, violence, it was less so. And so 
that's how it came the idea for that piece, why women go together to the toilet. Because I went to this club dancing and every single time I would say like, I'm, I'm going to go to the toilet. One of the ladies who never saw me before that day would say, I'm coming with you. And of course we go, we do that in Brazil. You know, women go together, girls will go together to the toilet, but it's normally a group of friends who know each other. I didn't know those women and they were still doing that. When I came back, one of the times, I was like, you know, you know, we do that in, in Brazil as well. We go together to the toilet. Uh, what is that? You know, why that is? And these British women, they were not laughing. They went straight away and said, it's for our protection against men. That was a great wake-up call for me at the time. So I started speaking more about that. I started writing my first things more on feminism against sexual harassment in 2009. Mm. And then I went on and became more outspoken. And then we have like the big awakening. The big <laughs> awakening was this. 2011, I got pregnant for the, for the second time. But this time, it didn't go well. First time round, I had my first child. All went fine. I had a wonderful labor experience. You know, I was so much in love, so much oxytocin. But then uh, in 2011, I got pregnant for a second time. And things changed dramatically. First time round, all went well. I got like at nine weeks, my reference letter from the midwifery team and first antenatal appointment at 12 weeks. With a second, no letter whatsoever. So I started phoning the midwifery team and I said, look, I, I need to start antenatal care. They said, oh, well, we don't have any reference here for you. I said, well, you know, look again, please. Then next week, nothing. And then next week, nothing. In the end, they were telling me, look, you are bothering us. And I said, I need to start antenatal care. Then they finally booked me my first appointment for when I was going to be 16 weeks pregnant. But then three days before that first appointment, I started bleeding and cramping. So I contacted my GP they said, well, we don't know what's going on. There's nothing we can do. Sometimes bleeding is, is normal in a pregnancy. Sent me home. Next day, more bleeds. And then I sought the closest medical facility to my place. And they kind of did the same, sent me back home. They finally gave me an ultrasound scan, but there was no fetal's heart beating anymore. And so they sent me home again and they said, you put um, a thick pad on, you know, and if it fills up with blood in an hour, you have to call the emergency services. So I went home, put the pad on. It filled up in 10 minutes. I fainted, I passed out. My husband found me in, in a puddle of blood in the toilet called the emergency services. I still spent the whole night in that medical facility until 11, and 11 a.m. in the morning. They put me in like in triage. There was an open bay. There comes a man 
says nothing to me, puts one of my leg in a stirrup, the other one too, and starting doing curettage without any warning, without any painkillers. And when I was screaming my head in pain, he said, shut up, stop making a scene. So that was my awakening. Obstetric violence. Oh my God, that's so horrible. And this is like my mom, my mom, she lost her first daughter due to, to obstetric violence. Uh, she was basically left alone at hospital with no medical assistance. Three days because of that, they put this big woman on top of her and pushed the belly down, you know, and she got all hurt. The baby died three days later after being born. What they did to my mom is called a crystaller maneuver. That's what we call, talk about like obstetric violence, like all this abuse and physical and even verbal violence during childbirth, because childbirth in the hands of men became like, basically, women are walking wombs, walking incubators on a conveyor belt. I will never, never, this image will never leave me because all this, you know, all this violence in 2011. And that's how I started activism for women, you know, for pregnant women and women childbirth. Oh, okay. So that was kind of your entry point into... Activism. Activism. Yeah. yeah. It was like active activism like you know i had a facebook page called pregnancy is not a disease i was writing about this put up some post as well about like procedures that actually can happen in a gynecological appointment in antenatal care pregnant women rights and this kind of stuff very very soon in the activism for pregnant women and women in childbirth I realized that obstetric violence was a very much feminist issue. You know, no women should go through this violence while having birth. Of course not. So in 2016, there were two cases that really, really, like this was the big radical feminism awakening. First case, medical students left the cinema in India and then they were kidnapped by six men in a minibus. They beat the heck out of this guy and threw him out of the bus to die. He didn't, but then they gang raped the female student, impaled her, and then threw her as well out of the bus to die. And she did die like two or three days later. So that was like one of the horrific things that was happening at the time. And it still happened a lot in India. And then we had this case in Brazil. So there was a 16-year-old girl in Rio de Janeiro who was already a teen mother, story of women in poverty. And then she had a little boyfriend. He simply took her to this big place, like kind of warehouse. He took her there. He drugged her and then he started inviting men to rape her. And in the end, he managed to find 
32 more men. So she was gang raped for an entire weekend, like I think Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, for 33 men. And that shocked me to the core. I started asking questions. I shared a lot about it because they did that over this weekend, that weekend. And then on Monday, videos they have made of the gang rape went to Twitter. And so we had this huge campaign with feminists reporting and reporting, and we were not just reporting it to Twitter. I think there were 800 reports to federal police about the video on Twitter, you know. And so a feminist lawyer took the case pro bono, and then she managed to put the, the girl in witness protection program. And then some of them at least were arrested. How come this happened? How come? Because people, men, especially my Brazilian men, they were saying so many hurtful things, like she was a promiscuous girl already because she was a teenage mother. See how I didn't want to become a teenage mother? Because I knew, like, once being in poverty, I wouldn't be able to do stuff that I wanted to do. And then, like, I, I was like, you guys are saying that. How come this boyfriend knew 32 pedophiles? And rapists. And rapists. And in fact, this was not what, what happened. What happened was that, uh, given the, the chance, 32 men were offered the chance of raping a girl and getting away with it, and they accepted. What I was questioning was like, how come, was there any man who was offered to rape this girl and had refused? Because apparently there wasn't. So I was asking this question and these men were like, oh no, she was promiscuous, she must have liked it. It is kind of stuff. These things that masculinist, misogynistic men say. Some of my friends, they had started studying the feminist theory, radical feminism, second wave feminism. And then because of these questions I was asking, you want to understand why this happened? Yes, I do. Please, please, please. Because honestly, I spent two months wanting to end my life. I, 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 I couldn't take it anymore. What went through your mind? Because I think more women than you realize can relate very well to this. What went through my mind yeah. was I was still struggling to understand whether I had sexually provoked a 60-year-old man when I was eight. That was went through my mind. And that moment, studying, starting to read works on pornography and prostitution and sexual abuse, by second wave feminists, radical feminists. I finally, one day, managed to internalize that it was not my fault. I did nothing wrong, but it took me 30 years because the narrative was that I was at fault. And also I have felt at times similar to, I can't believe we live in a world in which men 
are allowed to do these horrendous things to women and we have no recourse and that just feels intolerable at times. Yeah, that's how I felt. So from that moment on, I started studying very eagerly the feminist theory. And then we had Bolsonaro in Brazil and then activism kind of became a little bit complicated on some social medias like Facebook. We were already like being reported and losing our Facebook accounts for sharing pictures of women breastfeeding or childbirth. Well, some activists actually left Brazil, you know, afraid of the backlash during a very conservative government. I would be like talking to my, my childhood friends and still talking about obstetric uh, violence and stuff like that, but not that much about feminism. So I went to Twitter. I had a Twitter account, but I went to Twitter talking in English because I had lived you know, for 10 years in the UK. And I knew some women, you know, like Julie Bindel, Linda Bellows, Gail Dines. So I went looking for them. I started like listening, listening, reading, reading, reading. And I read and I read and I read and I read more and I read more and a lot more. But I was, I still was a little bit in that kind of mindset in which I, I, I was too hopeful. Now I'm in my 40s. I think I ran out of fucks. But, <laughs> we all do. <laughs> but yeah. at the time, I still was too hopeful. So I, I, I started talking, interacting with other women. And, and then I thought, I'm going to make a thread, a Twitter thread on things that used to happen to women, but don't happen anymore. Like, uh, let's say, scold bridles to silence women. Mm. Let's see, foot biting, throwing widows in the pyre of their deceased husbands to be burned alive, this kind of stuff. And then I made a mistake. I put in that, female genital mutilation. And then uh, um, FGM survivor, she was so kind. She started interacting with me. Actually, it hadn't finished and it's getting worse. I'm like, oh, no, tell me. And then she started telling me like 200 million women and girls affected throughout the world. It happens in most countries. Don't never be fooled that, oh, no, it doesn't happen in my country. It doesn't happen in the United States. It doesn't happen in, in, in Denmark. It happens. Okay. They just don't tell the authorities. But in fact, like 94 countries, 800 girls and women at risk of uh, suffering female genital mutilation per day. And like we were talking and like she was so nice and so, so well informed. And so passionate. And I said, look, I have 70 followers here on Twitter. Like, I'll be a drop in the ocean, but I'll be that drop. So I started supporting her campaign. And because of her and because of all of this I told you already, I started, like, instead of doing that thread of things that used to happen, I started to wonder what else might be out there that's still happening to women. Like, 
are, are we really not oppressed anymore? Like, oh, we have achieved all the equality when this is still happening. So at the time, I started like working on this Twitter thread on female issues, only affecting women and girls. And then all these debates about what is a woman, what is not a woman, uh, a woman is a feeling, a woman is a sentiment, is a, a woman uh, is whoever says they are a woman. And I was like, come on. Do you even know why women are oppressed and discriminated? You know, do you know the root of women's oppression? And I tried to explain over and over and over, but it gets tiring because these people don't want to listen. So that's how in 2020, I did the Guide to Radical Feminism. Why a book, a feminist book, a book about feminism. Remember that I told you that I used to read a lot as a child and as a teen. We were poor, okay? We were very humble. And my mom was a seamstress. And all the money that was not going to be spent on food, paying mortgage for the house, clothes, stuff like that, electricity, all the little money she had, she would save to buy books. I was very grumpy. I was very grumpy about this, like this whole, what is a woman and stuff like that. What is the root of female oppression? And at the same time, mapping, charting female oppression. I, I read so much feminist theory, so many radical feminist second wave books, books about pornography, obstetric violence, sexual harassment and stuff like that. I read so, so many of these books. The Creation of Patriarchy by Gerda Lerner. Amazing, amazing. One of my favorites. Of Women Born, Adrienne Rich. Feminist theory from Margie to center, bell hooks. And I thought, is there a book saying like, okay, so these books are feminist theory. These books are second wave feminism. These books are radical feminism. Is there a book like answering the question, what radical feminism is? What is the feminist theory? And what is the root of female oppression? And I thought I might do that. I might do that in a, like, in a more light-hearted way, especially for the next generation. So I, I tried to do that in both like a fun way, trying to get to bring elements from the internet. I wanted to appeal for a young uh, public as well, especially young teenagers, to see if we, we could get more women to know not only the root of female oppression, but also that we need to fight against it. Women are still oppressed. It's not over. We have many issues. I absolutely love The Grumpy Guide to Radical Feminism because it is so light and concise at the same time. And I think it's particularly timely because of the time we're in, of course. But feminism has gotten lost. It's lost its way. And it has gone seriously off track from the original feminist theory. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the greatest thing about it is that it really clarifies 
and differentiates what is radical feminism as opposed to the current feminism that we're kind of being spoon-fed all over. Can you talk a little bit about what the liberal the feminism? Liber I would yeah. like to say something about feminism. It's a good word because it's just one word and it's very Western. Okay. I think it's a good word to summarize, but I think we uh, women also have to understand that not all women around the world has to adopt the word feminism because I only think of feminism or women's rights movement. The ones that are actually actively fighting for women. So uh, I think what happened is that women's rights movements, especially in the West, they were hijacked by men, by men uh, in capitalist societies. I have been researching for some time now the origins of so many dehumanizing language that is being thrown towards women and girls nowadays in the feminism movements. Dehumanizing language towards women is very common from a long time, you know, especially since, since pornography, because pornography popularized female objectification. Female objectification has been around for a long time, but pornography in the 1970s, 1980s, made it wildly popular and accessible to the masses which never happened before in human history. And uh, the popularization of pornography, of course, leads to not only sexual objectification of women, but also like simply objectification. So we become objects. Uh, and when we become objects, it's like I'm told that the people in Rwanda who were genocided, they were being called cockroaches just before what happened? Yeah, the Rwanda genocide. Yeah, so now we're now we're called menstruators, bleeders, bleeders, breeders. Oh, have you yeah. seen the latest glossary on female body parts? So this LGBT organization they made a new glossary, and they were calling vaginas front holes. And there have been some other literature calling women vagina owners. And in the new one, in the new glossary, apparently, we have a bonus hole. So when you wrote The Grumpy Guide, was part of it a reaction to this movement that you saw happening? Not so much, because as I said, I started the Twitter threads on female issues first. And I was like, the root of female oppression is that women have their reproductive labor of gestating exploited by men in patriarchal societies. Period. So like we have child marriage, we have aesthetic violence, we have like, all these women who lose their jobs if they get pregnant. They might not be hired because they might get pregnant or they might not get their maternity leave. They might be fired just after returning from maternity leave. This is all exploitation of women's reproductive labor. We have so many issues to tackle. Male violence against women in the domestic environment, male violence against women everywhere, male sexual violence against women, 
little girls, eight-year-old girls being cut, mutilated, given to what it meant to be raped, prostitution, pornography, lack of male representation. Women are not economically independent. Majority of women is still burdened with the household chores, even if they're married. So answering your question, like, I don't think feminism got lost and stuff like that. What happened was that many men promised rewards and protection to a lot of women. And these women believed them that they were going to be protected. They were going to get rewarded. And this is what we call the liberal feminism, because this is a movement that is not fighting for women. We have a saying in Brazil, I don't know if you have anything similar to that. We say that a feminist movement that a man is applauding is doing something wrong. Radical feminism calls itself radical because it goes to the root of female oppression. And the root of female oppression is the exploitation of women's reproductive labor by men in patriarchal societies. And so, like, I don't even, I, I, I don't call uh, liberal feminism feminism. For me, the only feminism that is, uh, if we have to use the word feminism, the only women's rights movement is any movement, it's any movement that is actually fighting against female oppression by the hands of the men who are oppressing women. You have a quote in your book by Kate Millett that says, many women do not recognize themselves as discriminated against. No better proof could be found of the totality of their conditioning. Have you heard of so many people who struggle with the words victim and survivor? I think that when you think of yourself as a victim, you might be at a stage in which I was before my awakening, before 2016. I thought about myself as a victim because I didn't get any justice. I was victimized. But then when I jumped that fence and like, I will help other women, I became a survivor. So it's, there's nothing wrong between calling yourself a victim or a survivor. There is another quote in the book as well that many women, that's by Andrea Dvorkin, many women have so much difficulty in becoming feminists, uh, talking about female oppression because it's so heartbreaking to know the many forms in which a woman might be oppressed. And I feel that like for Brazilian women, I think that's very true. I think there's another, another specific thing that happens to Brazilian women. None of my childhood friends have ever canceled me. Not even when I talk about like men are not women, they might not agree, but they don't cancel me. But at the same time, I cannot get many of my older friends to actually look a little bit closer at female oppression. I actually see a, a, a physical reaction then that they go like, oh my gosh, oh no, this is so heartbreaking. No, no, please don't talk to me about this anymore. Like they feel so much. I, I feel like that if they hear 10% of what I know right, right now, 
they will feel so, so, I, I think they will go depressed because they might start thinking of what they are going through. And that's one of the things that we don't talk too much about because sometimes women are so oppressed that they don't want to hear about female oppression because if they acknowledge female oppression, they will have to look inside of themselves and they will think, should I say no to this? And then they will realize, the vulnerable ones, they will realize, I cannot actually say no. Because if I say no, I will be killed. And I'm not talking about the ones like who are like spouting so much, like trans women are women and stuff like that. They are not vulnerable. They are not vulnerable. They are just throwing women who are vulnerable under the bus. I wanted to jump to, so you wrote a report, a 400-page report called Women's Sex-Based Oppression in the 21st Century. Yes. How did that come to be? Yeah, so basically, it's a research, and then, you know, did it into a report, that is started with that very thread of female issues that I started in August 6, 2019. I started that like on Twitter and then because it grew so much, my first intention was like do 50 tweets on it and then that would be it. But there were so many women bringing other information, other issues, new issues, issues that I had never even thought about that it grew kind of out of proportion. So like in that thread, I might have already 3000 different links to these stories. And people kept asking me, Andrea, this is such valuable research. Can you put these all together in one place? And then I went like, okay, let's do this properly. I decided to peruse each piece for like a significant paragraph that like would summarize the the news story about that issue in particular. So like I did that for 1000 links, 1000 news stories. I come to some conclusions on, on this, on this report and that I suggest that female oppression is global, is still happening. There are several layers of oppression happening to women all over the the world. Some places are worse and we have to take that into account because the goal should be let's level up. Let's take these women who are vulnerable and bring them to a level in which they are not that vulnerable anymore. That should be the goal. The basics of this report is that It covers over a decade of news stories. There are stories from all over the world. It's not only like the most, some of the most horrific stories is not only in African countries, in Asian countries, in Latin American countries. There are horrific stories in Europe too, in developed countries too. I summed up some forms of discrimination and oppression that basically affects women in all countries. There isn't a single country that can say, oh yeah, no, no, we don't have this in my country. 
sexual abuse. There is no country in the world that can say, oh, no, no, we don't have sexual abuse of women in my country. There is no country. There is no country. 150 countries. Domestic violence. Marriage of underage girls. There is no country. Can you imagine that? Pregnancy of teenage girls. Physical and psychological abuse during labor. There is no country that doesn't have obstetric violence, femicide, prostitution, pornography, female genital mutilation, more than 90 countries, wage gap, economic dependency. There is no country, not even Iceland, no country whatsoever. Unpaid labor, no country. Political underrepresentation, medical negligence, and lack of bodily autonomy. Reading through all 400 pages is a grim picture because of the sheer amount of stories, the enormous geographical breadth around the globe, and also the just array of the different problems from economic to social to sexual, uh, etc. Is this available online? Yes. I have the Weebly website where I have all my books so far. But on my website, people who are a, bit, a little bit short of money at the moment can download the report for free. If you want to support my work, you can go on Amazon and buy the report in Portuguese or in English. And uh, for the Grumpy Guide, same thing, English, Portuguese, Spanish, French, German, Italian, Dutch, and Greek. So for anyone who thinks we have made great progress in women's liberation and protecting women's rights, mm -hmm. this is kind of completely antithetical to that. It shows a very different picture and a very overwhelmingly grim picture. We have made some progress, but can we all say that we are not having like a, a, a this regression of rights? Roe versus Wade, come on! Women took it for granted and now it's gone. Even the UN that is captured by this ideology, they're still fighting for female toilets in African countries, but not for European countries, for Latin American countries. You know, that they're, they're taken away like, oh no, you had too much rights. You know, yeah, female toilets, oh no, too much. Do you know when the Brazilian Congress Parliament building uh, started having a female toilet? It was basically five years ago. And then now it's now gone again. So if you had to sum up what this report, what the message or... The message is very clear. Women are oppressed. Women have been oppressed for a long time. This report, it's only talking about the last decade. Most of the issues are still happening. And instead of tackling them, men are allowing other men to debate what is a woman. That's the message of this report. 
you know? Like, how about these issues? Can we talk about this? Can we talk about these issues referring to women and girls as women and girls without being attacked for not referring to women and girls as bleeders, vagina owners with front bonus holes, bodies that gestate? That's the message of this report. Can we talk about female oppression? Do you know what is the root of female oppression? Can we stop this? Can we stop women dying from childbirth? Can we stop men beating up women because women didn't make the dinner? That's the message of this report. Can we tackle? Can we address? Please, please, please. Can we put more women in the justice system? Can we have more women in, in political positions? This is what the report is about. Okay, We have lots of issues, loads, loads of them to sort out. Nobody's talking about them because people, men especially, are demanding women to debate what a woman is. And worse, men are telling women that women are the oppressor of men who says that he's a woman. And men who say there are women are the most oppressed kind of women. They are actually saying that women for being born with female anatomy and being exploited for gestating are actually privileged. Can we talk about it? Can we stop this nonsense? Because the goal of stopping this nonsense is coming back to this report and let please give women safety, privacy, dignity, independency and emancipation. We just want to live our lives in safety. That's all we want. Thank you. And that was wonderful. I speak too much. Oh, no, I love it. I love it. I speak too much because I've been silenced. And now I have to speak. Because <laughs> what I couldn't, couldn't say before, I say it now before it's too late. Amen to that. <laughs> All right. Well, take care and thank you so much for giving me your time. And Okay. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Subject to Power. You can find the show online at subjecttopower.com or subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts. I'd love to know your thoughts on these conversations, so please drop a note on the website or find us on social media. The best way to support the show is to rate and review Subject to Power on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. Subject to Power is written, hosted, and produced by me, El Kamihira. Audio engineering is done by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art by B. Johnson. And music by Beware of Darkness. <laughs>